Listener Production. A quick disclaimer before we get started. Although I'm a doctor, I'm not your doctor. All the content and information discussed in this podcast is for informational and educational purposes only and does not constitute medical advice. Remember, always consult your doctor before making any decisions about your health. There are three things that are certain in life. Death, taxes, and if you're a woman with ovaries, menopause. Menopause? Seriously? It's an inevitable part of womanhood that signals the end of your reproductive cycle and the start of not having to worry about when you can wear white pants. Just like puberty, the first bookend of the reproductive cycle, menopause can be dramatic, chaotic, and at times mortifying and monumental, or indeed none of these things, but a process that can take years to transition into. You see, when a woman hits the age of about 40, the production of our main sex hormone, oestrogen, decreases. So who's laying these eggs? But it doesn't just decrease steadily. Oh, no. What fun would that be? It decides to waver back and forth with the unpredictability and rage of a child coming down from a sugar high. Cue moodiness, trouble sleeping and the dreaded hot flushes. I'm sweating like a pregnant nun back here. In reality, we don't actually know what causes hot flushes exactly. In fact, we don't really know why menopause happens at all. Humans are only one of three mammals on Earth that go through a menopause-like experience. Pretty unfair. And it's been the bane of evolutionary scientists for years. Think about it. If the goal is to pass on your genetic material to as many people as you can, you know, populate the Earth and secure humanity's survival and whatnot, then you'd think that humans would have an everlasting supply of eggs and sperm. Hmm. I guess God didn't have it totally in for us. That's what I'm talking about, baby. No hassles. But what we do know is that sometimes it sucks. Next to hot flushes, the second suckiest thing about menopause is the idea that society somehow sees it as signalling the end of womanhood altogether. What a crock of shit. In Western cultures, this idea has persisted for centuries. In fact, Victorian-era medical practitioners, steadfast on the belief that the brain and womb were fatefully linked, thought that the only logical way to treat climacteric insanity, a.k.a. menopausal women with a voice, was to lock them up behind bars in an asylum. Welcome to being a woman. But in Asian cultures, menopause is thought of very differently. It's embraced as just another milestone in the path of life. It signals renewal, transformation and improved social status. In some African cultures, menopause is viewed as another facet of growing older, bringing with it increased social power and respect. Sign me up for that! But menopause doesn't have to be sucky. In fact, the hormone replacement therapies that were blacklisted in the early 2000s have now been proven to be safe and effective. So, how does hormone replacement therapy work? What can women going through menopause or perimenopause expect? And how can women reclaim the narrative around what menopause really means? Hi, I'm Dr. Sneh Wadwani, women's health GP and advocate, and this is everything from A to V. 
the podcast separating the fact from the fiction when it comes to women's health. Here, we'll answer some of the most common questions I get asked by women just like you, and we'll debunk a few myths along the way too. I think it's about time you and I had a little conversation about menopause. In today's episode, we'll be joined by Dr. Ginny Mansberg. Ginny wrote the Bible on menopause, the M-word, and she's here to shed some light. So Ginny, you're an incredibly accomplished doctor and a wealth of knowledge. So we're here to chat about menopause, which is your subject. But before we jump in, I want to ask you what led you to this area of expertise and why you're so passionate about educating women on this topic. The thing that led me into it was I got approached by a book publisher and my manager came to me and said, will you meet this publisher? She wants to, you know, you to write a book. And when she told me what the book was, which was about menopause, I was like, oh, Nick off. How old do you think I am? Oh, wait, I'm 48. (laughs) Okay. That kind of makes sense. And so I kind of was led into it by the book. At that time, I had worked out that my knowledge could basically fit on a postage stamp. And I was feeling really guilty because every time I would interview a menopause expert uh, for Drive Time Medical, which is how we met originally, Snay. I was so aware that I had zero knowledge and I kind of got hooked. It was actually writing the book that led me into actually being super passionate and now I'm like a mad menopause nut, but I certainly wasn't when it all started. That's inspirational. I think, you know, it's it's often though what sparks our interest, I think, when when we're in the business, you know, sometimes it might be a patient, sometimes it might be our own experience, right? But I want to start at the beginning, right? So let's talk about the perimenopause first, because I think we spend a lot of time talking about menopause, but the lead up to that, the perimenopause, I think in many ways is actually can be more challenging. I think it's a lot more challenging because if you think about the definition, menopause is 12 months since the first day of your last period, only you didn't realise it was your last period because who's got a crystal ball to know that there's never going to be another one again? There are a lot of women who think, oh, that's it, it's all over Red Rover, only six months ago um, later to get actually another period out of the blue. So you didn't know it back then. Twelve months later, you hit menopause. It's a single day. It's the hormone roller coaster, which, you know, different studies have shown different things, but it can be up to about 10 years leading up to that day of menopause that is seeing your hormones go up and down like a yo-yo. And it really is peak time, particularly for things like brain fog and mental health issues that are really nasty. And we're only now really increasingly recognizing that they are hormonal and they actually are not just because you're a crazy lady and, you know, women are crazy. I think what's really interesting about that, though, is A, women are not crazy ladies, but also the onset of particularly the the cognitive, you know, that kind of brain fog, the anxiety piece, it, it really does come in really insidiously, doesn't it? So it kind of creeps in and then before you know it, it's a problem. Yeah, and often this is happening to women who have teenage children, ageing parents. They've often reached a particular stage of their career where they've got a little bit more responsibility. There's a lot more stress in their lives. So there's a lot of reasons to actually, you know, just write off all of your symptoms as just what is happening in my life. The reality is we know it's hormonal, but a lot of women who present to their doctors and talk about these kind of symptoms 
the doctors won't go, listen, what's happening with your periods? Because it's not a natural question that goes with somebody who goes, I'm not coping. You don't always say, so So, how are your periods going? Yeah, absolutely. And so with the perimenopause, you you touched on it earlier, it can be really how long is a piece of string, right? And And it can expand for up to 10 years before that last menstrual period. We know some of the symptoms, you know, you talked about anxiety, you talked about brain fog, but there's a whole heap of symptoms that women might might notice, right? Yeah, so I think when people think menopause, they think hot flushes and that's it. And even when I started looking at menopause, I think we had sort of seven distinct different symptoms, most of them related to the loss of estrogen, which happened quite late in the perimenopause journey. But now we have over 40 that have at least been ascribed to perimenopause. We're still trying to gather data that actually link it. But these are symptoms that happen disproportionately in women who are in midlife and who are going through that hormonal transition phase. So there's this assumption that everything like, you know, burning mouth syndrome or palpitations of the heart or gut issues are actually related to hormones changing. We've got to really get the evidence to sort of nail that down. But yeah, we've got over 40 symptoms now that we ascribe to perimenopause. And I think that's really interesting. You know, we or, or people often equate oestrogen and, and often forget about testosterone, actually, but we'll come to that later. But these two hormones, you know, are equated with our sexual health, our feminine health. But actually, these hormones have really critical factors in other parts of our physiology, don't they? And, and once they're not there... That's why a lot of these symptoms manifest. Or if you're getting changing levels. So it's actually often our body is responding to the yo-yoing levels, particularly of estrogen, which really does go up and down day to day, even hour to hour, which is why hormone tests are just so completely useless because it tells you what is going on in your body at one particular moment in time. I could do the same blood test tomorrow and give you a completely different answer. Now, no one's advocating that you do 100 blood tests in 100 days, but that's probably what it would take to show that you're in perimenopause. Instead, what doctors say is listen to the lady in front of you. She's telling you what is going on with her. It is quite easy to join the dots and tell her that she's in perimenopause minus the blood test, which does not add anything to the picture. Absolutely. So let's talk about what's happening in a menopausal body or a perimenopausal body. What's actually going on there that's making women feel the way they do? So we need to unpack that into A, what we can objectively measure and B, woman-to-woman variation because there is a lot of that as well. So if you have a look at the stages of perimenopause, the first three stages are actually all about your reproductive life, starting to have periods, starting to make eggs. The eggs are designed to go and get you a baby, to meet the sperm of their dreams and go off and get you pregnant. But as you hit perimenopause, your first stage of life is straw, what we call minus two. And at that stage, your ovulation is happening, but it tends to be either A, sporadic, or B, you don't get as good a level as proge- of progesterone as you used to. Now, let me explain. What happens after you have ovulated is the egg goes off to meet the sperm of her dreams and the little bubble that was housing that egg now becomes a progesterone factory. And often how it makes progesterone is actually taking some testosterone and spitting it out as progesterone. That is that that very first stage of perimenopause where you're often getting a sub-satisfactory or even no ovulations at all. 
But what is happening is your brain is still trying to say, come on, ovaries, you've got this, you've got this. And it's putting out quite high levels of a stimulating hormone called follicle stimulating hormone. And that can actually give you quite wildly fluctuating levels of estrogen, which are quite difficult for your brain to handle. There are estrogen receptors on so many tissues inside your body. We don't understand what they all do, but there are estrogen receptors in bones, in your brain, you know, on your heart tissue, in your gut tissue. They are very active all the time. And so that's the first stage. The second stage of perimenopause that we call straw minus one, because we're on the countdown towards that one day, which is menopause. That is where the second hormone starts to tank. And that's your estrogen levels. And at that point, we're also likely to have hot flushes and things like aches and pains, because that is what happens as your estrogen starts to wane. We have identified the genes that are responsible for what we call premenstrual dysphoric disorder. That is women who have severe depression before their periods and they respond severely to that lack of estrogen that happens just before the period. In some women, they have hardly any fluctuation in their estrogen levels at all, and yet they have severe hot flushes. If you are someone who used to have hormonal breakouts that were severe, back when you were a teenager, it's very likely to recur around your perimenopause time. And you're likely to get things like chin hair and moustache hairs. And sorry, they're going to be there forever. And you're going to lose hair on your head and you're going to get sort of some rage and some sort of a lot of angry symptoms as well. This is all to do with your genes and your individual responses to those hormones. And that's just really important because in my experience, and I know, Snay, this is something that we both have in common, how many women we see in, in menopause and peri. I don't see two women who have the same journey or the same concerns. It's really interesting to me that, you know, hot flushes, you know, statistically happen to 75% of women. That doesn't mean 75% of women come to me and go, oh, my goodness, get rid of my hot flushes. That's what I care about. A lot of people will go, why have I gained 15 kilos? That's what I care, That's what I care about. So everyone, every woman's journey is different. So we've got to take into account her own circumstances, her genes and the hormone fluctuations that she's having. I think that's all really, really valid and really important. And I think a real takeaway from that is if I had a dollar for the number of times I had a patient coming in going, I need to check my hormones are in balance because I think they're out of balance. They're not meant to be balanced. They are never balanced. They are up and down and all over the place and especially in the perimenopause. And I think the other myth to debunk there is that it's the deficiency of hormone that gives us the symptoms. Yes, to some extent, but it's actually the fluctuation in that hormone. And I think when I'm talking to ladies in consult as well, I often mirror, do you remember how you felt when you were going through puberty? You went from nothing to loads of hormone and that transition was really tough. It's similar going in the transition the other way. You're still going to have symptoms. So you, you nail that really well there. But let's talk about HRT. I don't know how what your experience is at the moment, but with the resurgence of HRT, and we can certainly talk about why that's happened, but what I'm noticing is lots of women are coming in saying, I've been told my estrogen's low because I'm menopausal and I need to replace that. And I think that's a really interesting concept for people to be buying into because it's not necessarily the case, is it? Absolutely not. It's so funny. When I first started practicing in menopause, at least 50% of my patients would have to be really convinced that hormone therapy was safe 
acceptable and was even going to do anything for them. These days, I'm just as likely to have a woman in her early 40s who's experiencing some anxiety but has a regular cycle coming in to say to me, hey, I think I might be in peri and I'd like some hormones, please. So that is much more what is happening because we've really just seen this flip from complete fear of HRT to wow, it should be put in the water. So we've got to, again, come back to somewhere in the middle. Hormone therapy, when it comes to hot flushes, which is the most studied of the symptoms, is in some studies up to 96% effective for getting rid of those hot flushes. So if what worries you is hot flushes, especially if you have another concern, for example, you have you know that you have low bone density because you've had a bone density study. It has shown you that your bone density is low. We know that estrogen is very effective for preserving your bone density and it will probably get rid of your hot flushes at the same time. We have less evidence for some of the other symptoms. So for example, anxiety and depression. Um, in the NICE guidelines that come out of the UK, hormone replacement therapy, particularly um, estrogen re uh, replacement therapy, is kind of the first cab off the rank. It is treated differently to depression and anxiety at other times of a woman's life. But the effectiveness is far lower than what we see as effectiveness with, let's say, hot flushes. Depression and anxiety are very complex. There's no point in me saying, here's the cure-all, it's definitely going to work. That is over-promising. At the same time, for other symptoms like, for example, brain fog, we have no studies that have linked estrogen replacement therapy to resolving brain fog. However, we know that the worse your depression, the worse your insomnia, the worse your hot flushes, the worse your brain fog. So you can kind of tangentially assume that there will be some benefit on brain fog. But again, we can't promise that. That is not something we can give you an ironclad guarantee for. As for women who have no symptoms at all, what would be the benefit of hormone replacement therapy? There probably will be some. So if you are someone who really cares about the collagen, I can tell you that once you become estrogen deficient, you are going to lose 30% of the collagen in your skin in the first five years after menopause, and you're going to continue to lose another 2% of that every year after that. The problem is aging skin is not an indication for hormone therapy because it is not without its adverse or what we call it, doctors call it adverse effects, but side effects. It is not completely side effect free. So we need to give it to you for medical problems or symptoms that we know will respond to estrogen therapy, not just because you want to look younger. That's simply not an excuse. And we don't put everybody on hormone replacement therapy at all. Let's talk a little bit about testosterone uh, because it's it's often overlooked, I think. You know, oftentimes women will equate, well, I think oftentimes they don't equate testosterone to libido, but, but that's not the only role of testosterone, right, in the female body. And it's not the only benefit of giving back testosterone. So there are testosterone receptors in women. A lot of women are really surprised to find that they have testosterone. All women have testosterone. It actually has two sources, directly made from your ovaries, but also from kind of this grab bag of kind of precursor hormones that comes out of your adrenal glands that your body can use to turn into estrogen or progesterone at its will. They're just sort of this really lovely grab bag of hormones um, that and actually you start to lose those way later than you lose your estrogen, and which is one of the reasons why you get such disastrous chin hairs and moustaches as you go into menopause because estrogen not used to counteract those. It's not there anymore to do any of that. 
So we know that there are testosterone receptors, particularly inside the brain and inside muscles and inside bones. And men who are testosterone deficient will certainly have a lot of impacts that have been well studied on their brains, on their muscles, on their bones, of course, also on their fertility. The thing is that data to support the role of testosterone supplementation for women, and by the way, your testosterone in women peaks at about age 30. Weirdly enough, it kind of falls off a cliff at around 40 and then starts to come back after you're in your 50s, which is really random. It's so sort of strange, but that is one of the things that happens. We don't have really good data about testosterone boosting brain performance or helping you with weight loss or helping you with muscle mass. And we know that postmenopausal women lose a huge amount of muscle mass and skeletal mass, so bone mass as well, which means that for any given weight, you have more fat. In theory, we think that taking testosterone for women, that that would be good for brain health and it would be good for um, muscular health and it would be good for bone health. The thing is we don't yet have the studies that confirm that. What we do have studies for is for hypoactive sexual desire disorder. So I think this is really important. And I'm going to just say something. So anybody who's a bit goes a bit beet red, make sure you're on your own while I talk about this. There are two types of low libido in this world. Low libido number one is, oh, I really don't want to do that tonight. I'm going to try and make an excuse. I've got a headache. I've got to wake up early tomorrow morning. It's kind of one, it's like going for a run. You kind of put it off, but then afterwards you go, actually, that's quite good. That we call being normal. Okay. That's called being in a relationship. We can we can fix that by giving you an affair. <laughs> just just on the record, Ginny is not advocating affairs. <laughs> I am not. <laughs> don't think it's a great idea. But At the same time, the second type of low libido, which I call low libido number two, is uh, hypoactive sexual desire disorder. That is when afterwards you go, well, that's 10 minutes of my life, I don't get back anymore. You have no sexual fantasies and you never masturbate and you find it quite hard to orgasm. For women who have hypoactive sexual desire disorder, the evidence for testosterone replacement therapy is very clear. If you give it to the right woman, It is life-changing, but it is not cheap. And if you are not very careful at always putting it on a different part of your body, because we don't give testosterone as a tablet, it comes as a cream that you rub on your body. If you don't make sure that you vary that, you can end up with a patch of black hair on your belly that nobody really loves. It is not without its side effects and super expensive in Australia. So I would just be careful about using it beyond that. In the UK, I feel like every second woman is on testosterone. It's actually made by an Australian company in Perth and they sell masses of it in the UK and hardly any of it in Australia, which is quite sad. Um, So in Australia, we're underutilising it. It's possible that in the UK, we're overutilising it a little bit. Yeah. And let's talk a bit, Ginny, about HRT generally, because not all HRT is the same, is it? It depends on what bits, what lady bits you have, what lady bits you don't have, and so much more. So. HRT or MHT, so hormone replacement therapy or menopausal replacement therapy, is is a treatment combination often of two different types of hormone, estrogen and progesterone, if you're a lady with a uterus. If you're a lady without a uterus, you won't need the progesterone component. And that's because Estrogen causes buildup of the endometrium on the lining of the womb, but we need progesterone to keep that regulated. Otherwise, it would build up in an uncontrolled way. 
Now, the interesting thing is that estrogen is probably the hormone that will manage most of the menopausal symptoms. But like I said, we do need progesterone if we have a uterus to protect the lining of the womb. And every woman will have different symptoms when it comes to menopause and perimenopause. So this combination of hormones needs to really be tailored towards their needs. Isn't that right? Yeah. So when it comes to estrogen, we have tablets and we have what we call transdermal estrogen, which goes across the skin. The transdermal estrogen comes in the form of patches and gels. As we speak, so you and I are recording this today in August 2023, where there are basically no patches available anywhere in Australia in any strength whatsoever. And we have been promised that some of them are coming back in August. I'm still waiting. It hasn't happened. The others are meant to be here they in September. They lie. They lie. They <laughs> lie. One of the big players in this space up sticks and left the Australian market altogether. I, I still have not been able to work out why that was. So... Patches are one form of transdermal estrogen, which means it crosses the skin. The advantage of that is that they don't seem to increase your risk of blood clots, which can happen with the tablet form of HRT. And they also can be used with people who have migraines. And people who have migraines, we generally don't recommend that they have any tablets um, in the tablet forms of estrogen, mainly because of a risk of stroke. But for everybody else, tablets are fine and a lot of women find tablets extremely convenient and that's totally fine. In terms of the gels, there are two types of gels, one that is PBS listed. I love it except for you've got to put a very big amount on a very small part of your body and wait for it to dry. I feel like it takes forever. In terms of progesterone, there are a number of different progesterones, but the form that we generally consider to be safest is actually a form called micronized progesterone, which is also sometimes called body identical progesterone. There are combination tablets and there are combination patches. As long as the form of progesterone that you're using is micronized progesterone, I'm reasonably happy. That is not available in a combination patch at this stage. We can only get micronized progesterone into you as a tablet, which has to be taken at night. And, and I guess just to emphasize there, if you don't have a uterus, then you only need estrogen, which can be given in those patches and that topical form. There is also the drug that is Tibolone that we don't talk about too much, but a really nice drug, a nice combined therapy in a tablet form, which in, in the early data was much safer, wasn't it? Yeah, so it was um, it was a combination of kind of a form of estrogen with a selective estrogen receptor modulator. So what that means is it sits on some estrogen receptors and not others, but it's not actually estrogen. And because it sits on the, it, the breast but doesn't actually is not doesn't act as an estrogen on the breast, the thought was it actually could be safer and could avoid that increased risk of breast cancer. We don't really have that evidence at the moment, unfortunately. We did do a trial on women who did have breast cancer and unfortunately they did have a slightly higher increased risk of return, recurrence of breast cancer. So we still are not using that for women who have an active estrogen receptor positive breast cancer at this point, or even a past history of estrogen receptor positive um, breast cancer, unfortunately. However, um, it's a pretty good one. It is meant to increase the libido as well. It can be very effective for women who've had, let's say, depression because we're not using a progesterone and it's some of the progesterones that can actually make your depression worse. So for depression, it can be actually not a bad choice at all. And so I guess the other thing is is all the non-hormonal treatments, right? And, and they really expand across 
non-hormonal medications that your GP might prescribe or your or your women's health specialist might prescribe. And then, of course, alternative therapies as well. And there are bits of evidence for both, aren't there? You don't have to use hormones. No, and some women can't use hormone therapy. For example, if you have breast cancer, uh, those women can never, ever, ever, ever use um, estrogen therapy ever, ever again. There is some debate currently in the United Kingdom. So one in three women who have an estrogen receptor negative breast cancer will at some point develop an estrogen positive breast cancer at some point in, in either the same breast or a different breast. And so until now, no one has actually used estrogen therapy in women with an, an estrogen negative, uh, estrogen receptor negative breast cancer that's being changed in the UK. At this point here, still in Australia, uh, it's still uh, considered taboo. By the way, your mother having had breast cancer doesn't count. Your sister having had it doesn't count. You can still have hormone replacement therapy. In terms of the medications that are used, they have mostly been studied for hot flushes which I think is a bit of a shame because it misses the opportunity to look at the whole woman and her what is going on for her. Aches and pains are more common than hot flushes than women of Asian descent. And in Australia, one in 10 women are Asian Australians and they are more likely to have aches and pains and yet none of these um, alternative therapies or even alternative non-hormone treatments, medications have actually been studied for aches and pains and for joint pains, which is a real shame. So what we can tell you about is their effectiveness against hot flushes and hot flushes only. Where we we are not going to have any wins is against, you know, reducing, protecting your bones, protecting you from bowel cancer, protecting your heart, protecting your brain. None of these medications, none of these non-hormonal medications are going to wrap up the whole person in front of you in the way that HRT can. That's okay because we doctors are here to support you and your choices. And as long as you're making informed choices, I'm really keen. In terms of the um, complementary and alternative therapies, it's very easy to measure hot flushes because you literally, you count them. And so we can say at the start of the trial, this woman was having 14 hot flushes a day and now she's having seven hot flushes a day. We've reduced those hot flushes by 50% in four weeks. Most of the trials that have been done on complementary and alternative therapies have actually been done on very small numbers. So we like bigger trials. A lot of these trials are small. A lot of these trials have only been done for four or five weeks. All of these studies have about a 75% placebo effect. So the placebo effect is very strong when it comes to hot flushes. The problem with the hot placebo effect is it doesn't last forever. So I would expect the placebo effect to give you somewhere between six and 12 months of benefit. At that point, it's okay to change tack and go, because a lot of my patients say it's stopped working for me. It hasn't necessarily stopped working for me, for you. The placebo effect has stopped being effective. My only caveat with saying go and give it a try is make sure that you are in the window of opportunity to start taking hormone therapy if you are going to spend some time something that's giving you a placebo effect. So let me explain. After this big study came out in 2002 that sort of said that HRT causes heart disease and it causes strokes and it causes dementia and it causes breast cancer and all of these things, that study was picked over by all the scarecrows and literally thrown out as a, as a doddle. But there was something really nice in there that we did find out, what we now call the timing hypothesis. If you give a woman hormone therapy either before she's gone into full-on menopause 
or very soon after she's gone into menopause, it is actually seems to be protective of the heart and the brain and definitely the bones. But something happens at somewhere between the six and the 12-year mark and in some studies as soon as the three-year mark where that same HRT that was protective flips and actually becomes harmful. And if you miss that boat, that little window of opportunity to start your hormone replacement therapy, it will be too late and you won't find a doctor who will prescribe it for you. So I'm very comfortable with your placebo effect as long as when you pull up stumps that you still have time to start something that's actually going to give you some proper relief. That is fantastic advice, uh, Jenny, and certainly the way many of us in the women's health space operate. And I think it's really good for for women on the other side to know that. So Ginny, you've got a book called The M Word and it's all about thriving in the menopause. What's one piece of advice you would give someone who's worried about what menopause means to their womanhood? Is it something they should be afraid of? I think we both know it isn't, but what's that bit of advice you would give? So by all means, go on TikTok for your advice. Um, the problem with TikTokers and Instagrammers in the menopause space is they're all about what a disaster it is. The reality is that if you speak to a doctor who is has done some training in menopause, we can treat every single thing and not one of these symptoms of your peri and menopause journey do you need to put up with. Don't put up with it. This is a fantastic time of your life. You really know who you are. You're not putting up with crap from anyone anymore. Don't be hamstrung by um, symptoms just because a TikToker tells you that it's inevitable. It is not inevitable. This is a great time of life. Fly, fly into the next stage of life. Just use the treatments that are available to you because they really do work. Thanks so much, Ginny. That was an incredibly empowering session, I think. Um, And yeah, and no doubt it'll impact many in a really positive way. So fantastic to have you and to collaborate on this again. All right. Thanks, Ginny. Thank you so much. So there you have it. Treatment of menopausal symptoms is possible and safe. And just remember, when you feel like you're losing control, it might not be you, it might be those hormones at play. Each menopausal journey is unique, so be sure to consult with your doctor to determine the most suitable treatment for you. You're not alone, and there's no shame in experiencing menopause. Be sure to join us next week for more debunked myths and your health questions answered. This podcast is a listener production hosted by me, Sne Wadwani. Producer is Kelsey Menzies. Executive producer is Todd Stevens with sound design by Kelly Falston. Listener.